You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Good morning. I'm uh, Will Baker, and we will be reading in Genesis 37, verses 2 through 11. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can turn to page 21 on the seatback Bible in front of you. Follow along with me as we read the Lord's word. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was turning the flock with his brothers, pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for a wonderful day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. God, let us um, listen attentively, open up our ears and our eyes and and cut our hearts open um, that we may gaze upon the beauty of Jesus through your word and through Genesis and that you may speak through Jonathan this morning and we may be transformed from the likeness of Christ um, our King and our Savior and so we ask all these things in Jesus name amen people who know me well know I'm an extremely competitive person I hate to lose It, it doesn't matter what it is whether I'm competing in a national tournament or I'm playing checkers with a six-year-old, there's no mercy. I'm out to win. And and as I've gotten older, I've been able to put my competitive edge at check a little bit. But when I was younger, it it was not confined at all. What was going on, I was competitive and I was upset when I lost. In fact, I remember when I was around eight years old at a family gathering and we were playing a board game and... I was just getting crushed. I mean, I was in dead last. And by the time we had finished, I fell way behind. And I wasn't bitter at all, but I did feel it was my need to point out all the ways that my older brother had gotten lucky. You got to speak the truth, right? And that's when my grandmother looked at me and she said, you know, the Bible says that the least will be the greatest. And I thought to myself, does that mean I won? No, that's not what she meant, unfortunately. 
what she was talking about was Luke chapter 22. In that passage, Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem with his disciples, and his disciples are bickering about who is the greatest. They're trying to figure out which one of them is charged and who is in second command next to Jesus. And that's when Jesus turned to them and he made that comment. The least among you will be the greatest. Now, I'm pretty certain that the disciples had no better understanding than my eight-year-old self did. But throughout his ministry, Jesus tried to hammer that truth into their heads, that the least shall be the greatest. Now, in many ways, the passage that we're hopping into and the rest of Genesis is going to follow after this pattern. The least will be the greatest. You see, this morning, as we hop into chapter 37, our text is going to take a major shift. From chapter 25 on until this point, our focus has been on Jacob. He's been at center stage. But now the focus is shifting on to the next generation. We will see Jacob's sons step into the prominence, and we will see a very messy family try to deal with their issues. Now, typically we think of Genesis chapter 37 to 50 as being Joseph's story and his rise to eventual power in Egypt. But I want to broaden your thinking this morning. You see, what this text is all about as we journey through to the end of Genesis is about God taking a messy and sinful people and creating them into a holy nation. God will certainly use Joseph throughout the story, and he will play a crucial role. But this is about the entire family of God that will one day be prepared to bless all the nations of the earth. Now, specifically as we hop into our text this morning, we are focusing in on that question. What does it mean to be the least? For Joseph's brothers, like the disciples, they too were trying to figure out who was the greatest among them. And for them, it had to do with patriarchy. You see, in those days, a head of the household, the leader of the family, would name somebody from the next generation to go on to lead that family in the future. And all of Jacob's sons were trying to figure out who that was going to be, who was going to be in charge, who was going to be the greatest. Now, this morning, as we hop into our text, we will ask two important questions that help us understand what it means to be least in order to be greatest. Those two questions we'll be asking this morning are, are you going to submit and are you, uh, are you going to be obedient and are you going to submit? As we dive into these questions and we pull out the truths from our text, we will begin to understand God's uh, place for his people here on earth. So if you will, please open up your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 37, verses 2 to 11. The first question we'll be hopping into this morning is, number one, are you going to be obedient? Follow along with me in verse 2. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring a flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, right off the bat, I want to draw your attention to verse 2. If you weren't with us last week or didn't catch this point, anytime we see these words, these are the generations, it's a signal to us in the book of Genesis that our text is going to take a major shift. And as I pointed out, the focus of the text is moving away from Jacob and onto his children. And immediately as we make that shift, we get a sense of tension that exists between Jacob's sons. 
We see here in the text that, well, Joseph is pasturing the flock with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. He brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. Now, as you can see on the screen above, the the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah are, are listed above. Bilhah had two sons, Dan and Naphtali, and Zilpah had two sons named Gad and Asher. And Joseph brought this bad report of them to their father. Now, we can speculate wildly of what this report was, but the fact of the matter is we don't know. And in recent years, it's been pretty common to kind of put the blame on Joseph, calling him a a tattletale or a spoiled brat, going forward and telling on his, his older brothers for no apparent reason. But there's some reasons here in the text to consider that that's not the explanation. And I think there's more going on here when we really dive in deeper. But before we do that, we have to understand that the, the children of Zilpah and Bilhah were in kind of a dangerous position to begin with. You see, they were sons of concubines. And what that meant is that they were second-tier wives. Though they bore children to Jacob, they weren't seen on the same level. And it wasn't uncommon for sons of a concubine to be excluded from an inheritance. So there's a lot at risk here. There's a lot going on that we have to figure out if if Joseph was acting righteously or not. He has clearly put these brothers in danger. But as we move forward, we'll see that the tattletale explanation seems to be an unfair accusation. Look at me in verses 3 and 4. It says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that his father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, I'm sure as I'm reading this, you've got a picture in your head of what Joseph's robe looked like. Whether you grew up on the children book stories or you were a child who went to Andrew Lloyd Webber's play, Joseph and the Amazing Tacticolor Dreamcoat. You probably have this picture of this beautiful, colorful robe that Joseph wore and obviously made his brothers jealous. But I hate to ruin your childhoods. That's probably not what this robe looked like back in Joseph's day. And number one, colors and fabric were very rare in those days and very hard to get a hold of. So finding a robe of many colors would have been extremely expensive and almost impossible to get a hold of. The other reason we know that this isn't, we assume this isn't technicolored, is because this Hebrew word is very obscure. Back when they were originally translating this into English, they gave their best guess and called it a robe of many colors. But as scholars have dug deeper, they found out that this is actually probably a robe of long length, with a robe length all the way down to Joseph's arms. Why is that important? Well, back in those days, you would get one of these robes if you were being put in a leadership position. In other words, Joseph is being named manager of his brothers. Joseph, the youngest brother, the 17-year-old, is being put in charge of his older brothers. What that means is, number one, that these brothers are probably furious. I would hate to have my younger brother put in charge of me. But number two, it also means that by Joseph bringing this report to his, brother, to his father of his brothers, is Joseph actually honoring his father? Joseph was put in a position to serve his father and report back on his brothers. 
And he may not have wanted this position, but that's the position he was put in. Jacob put him in a position in charge of the ones who are older than him. Now, as a side note, it's important to understand that Jacob is being a little bit sinful here. You remember back when Jacob was a child, his father showed the same sort of favoritism to Jacob's older brother Esau. And because of that favoritism, Jacob and Esau would have an almost 50-year feud because of the favoritism that Isaac showed to Esau. And here we see Jacob doing the exact same thing. He is loving one of his sons over the other 12 or the other 11. He is putting Jacob in a position, he's putting Joseph in a position where he either has to choose to honor his father or lie and be disobedient. But the point, however, as we zoom back in on these brothers, is that Joseph chooses obedience. Rather than taking the easy road out and lying for his brothers, he chooses to honor his father. On the other hand, we have these four sons who are being disobedient. Rather than doing the work they're supposed to do, they are cutting corners in some way and essentially stealing time from their father. Which brings us to two important points of application this morning. Number one, disobedience must be exposed. For Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the clear implication of the text is that they're being disobedient. They are not following their father's commands. They are not living up to the expectations that their father put on them, and they're disobeying. Well, they may not have liked the fact that Joseph had been put in charge. That's the situation they're in. The question is not whether they're going to obey Joseph. The question is whether they're going to obey their father. And I think the reality is, for us as sinners, is we don't like when our sin is exposed. We don't like when our darkness has been brought out to the light. That's what we see back in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned against God. Their first instinct was to hide from God and try to cover up their sins. Rather than exposing it and bringing it to light, they tried to run away and hide. And I think even our instinct to call Joseph a tattletale here in this text is evidence that we don't like when our sin is exposed. But the Bible calls us to take what is darkness and bring it out into light. The Bible commands us to confess our sins to one another and rebuke those in the church who are operating in sinfulness. That is our expectation. We are called to walk on this path where we truly believe the gospel, where we believe that no matter what sin we confess, no matter how shameful it may feel to us, we can bring it before God and be completely forgiven. We in the church need to be people who confess our sins, who rebuke each other in love, in care that we walk in holiness. Because disobedience is not what God has called us to. And that doesn't mean that we go around gossiping the sins of people in the church. It means we follow the proper protocol, which you can find in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. But what it means to us is that we be different from the world, so that we choose the light and we choose to seek after the truth. And when we are sinful, we repent and turn from our sins because we believe that Jesus will forgive us. But the reality is that we see here in the text that we don't always choose that option. 
And we don't always like those who do choose, choose the option of obedience. Which brings us to our second point of application. Obedience can put us in harm's way. Now, from the text, we can clearly see that Joseph is being obedient to his father. But by being obedient, he is hated by his brothers. Now, clearly, Jacob has put Joseph in a bad spot. Clearly, he's put him in a very difficult situation. But Joseph is not concerned about what's going to happen to him if he gives this report. He's only concerned about being obedient. His father had given him a clear role, a clear responsibility, and no matter what is at stake, he's willing to step up and operate in the truth. Joseph chose obedience. And we have to understand and count the cost and realize that if we are going to follow the word of God, if we are going to obey our heavenly father, sometimes it will feel like we are put in harmful situations. Sometimes when we are bold enough to get out and speak the gospel, people are going to hate us. Sometimes when we hold the biblical truth, people are going to turn against us. But the question is not whether we will uh, face repercussions by being obedient. The question is, will we be obedient to the word of God? And we have to choose the truth. For Joseph's brothers, they turned away from that truth because their deeds were evil. But Joseph stepped out in front and was willing to follow the calling of God no matter what the circumstances. But I think there's something even deeper going on here that keeps us from being obedient. Which brings us to our second question this morning. Are you going to submit? Now, as we read on, we will see two parallel dreams that are going to set the stage for the rest of the book of Genesis, but will also serve to heighten the tension that exists between Joseph and his brothers. Look at Joseph's first dream here in verses 5 and 8, 5 to 8. It says, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for the dream and for his words. Now as we hop in and we start to analyze these dreams, there's two things I want to explain about dreams in the ancient world. Number one, when a person had a dream to ancient cultures, they believed that was a message from the gods. They believed that that message had prophetic implications for the future that needed to be interpreted and understood. The second thing we needed to understand is that ancient peoples believed that dreams and the prophecy that they that brought with them could actually be changed. These dreams in some way were considered warnings that you could somehow change the outcome of that in the future if you responded to it in the right way. But what we have to understand about these dreams in our text is these are not from little g gods. This is from big g God, the creator of heaven and earth. These are prophetic messages and nothing is going to change these dreams. Next week in chapter 37, we will see the brothers attempt to try to change the outcome of Joseph's dreams. 
but they will fail miserably. Now, as another side note, I want to warn you against trying to interpret your dreams as prophetic messages. Number one, because back in the Old Testament time when prophetic messages were common, prophetic dreams were actually extremely rare. We only see them a handful of times in Scripture. And and the second reason you shouldn't interpret your dreams as being uh, prophetic messages from the Lord is because even when prophetic dreams came to prophets, they were commonly misunderstood. And God would often rise someone up to interpret that dream, like we'll later see with Joseph in the text. But what that means for us is that the millions of dreams that people had in Israel over the generations had no prophetic implications. And we shouldn't assume that when we have a a strange dream, that it's God in some way speaking to our future. But moving back to the text, we are seeing Jacob's sons make that exact same mistake. They are trying to interpret Joseph's dreams, and we'll actually see them do that incorrectly. And Joseph's dreams feel very clear. In his first dream, we see these sheaves coming and gathering together, and Joseph's sheaves rises up while his brothers bow down. As they interpret it, that seems to mean that one day Joseph will rule over them, which is actually correct. But in their head, they're not thinking about the time that's going to come in Egypt. They're thinking about patriarchy. They're thinking that this dream means that someday Joseph will take the place of his father, that he will be the head of the household, and that he will rule over their family as their leader. And that's actually not the case. In two weeks, uh, we'll actually learn that another son is going to step up and lead the family, a son named Judah but we'll have to wait to get to that. But what's here, what we need to be, uh, find important is that these brothers are making assumptions that's just not true. They're trying to interpret God's word rather than submitting to it, and we'll see that it will lead to them hating their brother and not being able to speak to him peacefully. But as we move forward, God gives Joseph another dream that should clarify for them that this is not actually talking about patriarchy. Go ahead and look at the second dream with me in verses 9 to 11. It says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mothers and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, this second dream feels a lot like the first one. In the first one, we had sheaths, and and here we have stars, but basically the same thing is happening. Joseph's stars rising up, the, the brother's stars are bowing down. But we have this little extra detail that changes things completely. We have the moon and the sun also bowing down to Joseph's star which of course is talking about his mother and father. Now, this should be immediate red flag that this whole patriarchy interpretation is not actually correct. Because in the ancient world, a son never became the patriarchy while his father was still alive. If the father was still alive, a son could not assume that position. So therefore, what the brothers are interpreting this dream is not actually correct. 
And to Joseph's credit, or to Jacob's credit here, he actually seems to get this in some way. Well, he originally rebukes Joseph, we see in verse 11 that he keeps these things in mind, meaning that Jacob is pondering what's happening here, and he's holding on to this truth to try to figure out what God is doing, because things just don't seem clear, and things aren't clear. It'll be several years before they find out what God is actually doing when he reveals that one day Joseph will sit on one of the greatest thrones in all of the land. But our focus here is not on Jacob. Our focus here is on Joseph and his brothers. And as we can see here, this dream is not taken well. Well, they already hated Joseph. Now they've been led to jealousy. Now they are concerned that one day their 17-year-old brother will rule over them. And to some extent, I get it. I have no desire to have my younger brother rule over me, whether he's 17 or 117. I just don't want to do it. But at the same time, the brothers completely understand that this is a message from God. They realize that this is prophetic. They realize that God is speaking. But they're refusing to submit. They're refusing not only to submit to their father's role and leadership of putting Joseph in charge, but now God is directly speaking to them. So now they are disobeying the word of the Lord. And that brings us to two points of application. Number one, submission requires you to be humble. Now, the word humility or humble in the Bible literally means to be brought low which is the same thing here we see the text describing will happen to Joseph's brothers. They will bow down before him or be humbled. And, and, and like I said, to some extent, I get it. I don't want to choose humility. I'm a conqueror. I like to win. I like to be in charge. And my instinct is not to bow down to others. And, and I think that's kind of a Ameri- thing of American culture. For me, even saying submission sounds like a dirty word. We don't like to submit. But we also have to understand that the Bible calls us to submit over and over and over again. We know, of course, that we are called to submit to God, but we are also called to submit to rulers and authorities. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Children are called to submit to their parents. And in the church, we as church members are called to submit to our elders. And we're also called to submit to uh, each other when we are faced with rebuke. You see, submission is a Christian word. Submission is the Christian life. We are called to live in humility and submit to the authorities around us. And here in the church, we have to humble ourselves before one another. And, And I hear this all the time. Well, I can't submit to the leaders of the church because I have seen leaders abuse their church members. But we have to understand that you wouldn't uh, wouldn't choose sin just because you see someone else sinning. And you also wouldn't allow your children not to submit to you because other parents have abused their children. No, what we're talking about here is healthy submission, where the elders are serving the people of the church and we are following their leadership. Because God has put them in places of leadership. And when our elders fall in sin, the Bible has given us protocol for that. You can look that up in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 to 20, 
alongside Matthew 18, 15 to 17. The reality is we are called to submit here in the church. And if you can't submit to the elders here at Mill Creek, I urge you to find a church where you can because you need to be obedient to the word of God. But his brothers refused to choose that submission because they believed that somehow Joseph was receiving something more than they were. But they failed to realize that Joseph was also having to submit in the text. Which brings us to our second point of application. Submission is for all of us. Now, there's something we need to realize that's happening here in the text. Joseph is not a dummy. Oftentimes, we describe Joseph as being this bratty individual who's bragging about his dreams and boasting about the position he'll one day have. But Joseph would have had to have realized that by telling this dream, he was putting himself in an extremely dangerous situation. I mean, his brothers are not good people. Back in chapter 34, we saw two of his brothers slaughter an entire city because one man assaulted their sister. You see, Joseph is stepping out into an extremely dangerous situation because he's willing to stand up and say, I believe the word of God. I am willing to submit to this calling that God has put on my life. And though it may seem dangerous, I am willing to stand here and say, I am going to follow this path no matter where it leads me. For me, I remember failing at this several years ago when I first felt my call into pastoral ministry. At the time, I felt like there was no way that God could ever make me into a pastor. I felt like I wasn't worthy. I felt like I couldn't follow that calling. And on top of that, I didn't want to leave my wrestling career behind. And when I was finally able to submit to the Lord, and was finally able to stand up and say, I am going to follow this calling, a lot of people got upset with me. There were people who had supported me for years in wrestling, and people close to me who didn't want to see me leave my wrestling career behind. But I had to follow the calling that God had put on my life. And that's what Joseph is doing here in the text. You see, for each and every one of us, the Bible puts things on us. He puts a path before us that we have to submit to. We have to believe that this authority is the all authority in our lives. If God has spoken it, we need to submit to it. Each and every one of us need to be willing to step up and to submit to the calling that God has placed in our lives. And I don't know what that looks like for you here in your life today, but God is calling you to serve him. And he's calling you, just like Joseph, to become the least for those around you. You see, while Joseph was willing to step up and proclaim that one day he would rule over his brothers, here, because he submitted to God, we will see him suffer. Joseph will be ostracized by his family. He will be sold into slavery, and one day he will be thrown in prison for a crime he did not commit, all because he was willing to submit to God. See, God will walk us down broken paths that will put us in lowly positions so that we will learn that the positions we face in this world, the authority that we strive after, is not worth seeking. The only thing we should be striving after is the face of the Lord. 
God is calling us all to submit and walk in lowly paths so that we will see that we are in desperate need of a Savior. Each and every one of us are in need of God, and we can only get there when we realize that we are broken, lowly, humble creatures in need of the Lord. For Joseph's family, they failed to realize that truth. And one day, God would rise up Joseph to a place of leadership that would ultimately bring them to to a place of humility. He sought after greatness. Jesus, uh, God would teach them the hard lesson that if we're not willing to submit and humble ourselves, God will humble us. God will bring us to our knees so that we realize that truth, that we need him and that we're desperate for him. And even Joseph here in the text, who's willing to be obedient and willing to be so immediate, will also become humbled for the sake of knowing the Lord. You see, what God was doing here was teaching the people of Israel that they needed to obey the word of the Lord and submit to his calling. Because one day they would be put in a place to serve all the nations of the earth. And they would be called to take this calling of holy and be a light shining in the darkness of this world. God would lead these people uh, to Egypt where they would face the worst kind of subjugation. But when he led them out, he would call them to be a a submissive nation. He would call them to obey their commandments and they would struggle for generations. Though the God of all creation put his calling on them, they would fight against him. They would rebel against his prophets. They would fight against his leadership, not knowing that God intended all of this for their goodness. You see, obedience and submission, it's not about us simply following rules. It's about us knowing the Lord who called us. And Joseph for his family would walk forward for them as a savior. He would go forward to redeem these people and one day rescue them from despair. But Joseph was only a temporary savior. What Joseph is doing for us here today is pointing us forward to another. On the road to Jerusalem, as Jesus' disciples were bickering over who was the best, who was the greatest, who was going to be in charge, Jesus was making his way to the cross. Jesus was preparing to humble himself, to become a servant of all the peoples on the earth, and even become obedient to death. Jesus came here not to take thrones and authorities. Jesus came here to die and be lowly. That is the path that Jesus is leading us down. Jesus is calling us to be servants in this world, to humble ourselves, to walk in obedience and submission, that people around us will come to know the name of Jesus and that we would come to know the face of our Savior. We are called to be the least because one day Jesus will make us the greatest. You see, what Joseph's brothers and the disciples failed to understand is that while God was making them the lowest here on earth, they were chosen by the author of creation. 
the one who spoke all things out into existence, had put his calling on them. He had chosen them, and he was making them holy. And even if they lost every position of power and authority there on earth, God was giving them something much more valuable than the things of this earth could offer. He was calling them to be his children. If you believe in Jesus Christ, God has chosen you. Though we may suffer in this world, though we may have to submit to the rulers and authorities around us, we know that one day we will stand with Jesus in eternity. Because well, Jesus submitted here on this earth. He now sits on the throne that is above every throne and he is ruling over creation. And we will one day stand with him in eternity. In that day, we will no longer suffer the sufferings of this world. In that day, we will never have to submit ourselves again to another authority other than Jesus because we will reign with him in eternity. And the suffering that we faced here and now is not even worth the blinking of an eye compared to one day standing with Jesus. Church, we got to be people who are obedient to the word of God, submissive to his authority, knowing that one day we will stand in eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your grace. Though we long to be people of greatness, though we long to be people in authority, you have called us to be lowly. You have called us to walk in the path of Jesus, the path of obedience and submission, the path that will lead us into dangerous positions, but the path that is ultimately leading us to heaven. Jesus, you have secured for us a place in eternity and give our hearts the strength to do everything we can in this world to pursue that calling. Because one day we will sit with you in eternity and praise forever the name of Jesus. And it's in that holy name, the name above every name, we pray. Amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.